from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Good afternoon, everybody. This astounding and unprecedented story continues to evolve. We are dealing with a challenge and a crisis that we have never seen in our lifetimes. We know the hospital surge is coming. And it has only just begun. COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. This week, we're recognizing a sobering anniversary the coronavirus pandemic, one year later. One year ago, mid-March, I actually genuinely felt almost almost panic, almost real genuine worry, which for an ER doctor like me is extremely unusual. I could recognize right away that a U.S. epidemic and a global pandemic was just going to be an all-hands-on-deck kind of a thing. For the first time, I really felt like I was entering a period where I had no idea what would come next. In retrospect, I feel sort of lucky that I got sick when I did. I think I would have been much more distraught if I knew then what I knew now. On March 11th, 2020, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a pandemic. After watching the slow tidal wave of infections, deaths, and fear consume most of Asia and Europe, Americans finally felt COVID's impact at home. This totally unknown novel virus took root and completely upended our lives. Remember when we were wiping down groceries like milk and even bags of potato chips and leaving packages outside for 48 hours? We've come a long way from those panic-stricken early months. So on this episode, we're exploring all that we've learned about COVID-19, about our healthcare system, about science, and maybe even about ourselves. I got sick with COVID pretty early on in kind of the trajectory of the pandemic hitting the United States. We'll be hearing firsthand accounts from three Americans intimately involved with COVID-19, an emergency room doctor, an epidemiologist, but first, a patient. 
My name is Fiona Lowenstein, and I'm an independent journalist, um, speaker, and consultant based in New York City. A friend of mine came over for dinner on March 10th. She got sick before my eyes, like literally got pale, said, I don't feel well. Of course, we were both like, is this COVID? I mean, it was so new at that point. Nothing had even shut down in the city. Um, she went home right away. And then three days later, um, I developed a fever and a headache. You know, I'm young. I, I was 26 at the time I got sick and I don't have any pre-existing conditions. Um, I'm very healthy. Otherwise, I like exercise six times a week. I used to teach yoga classes. Um, so I assumed that, you know, if it was the worst case scenario and it was COVID, I would get better relatively quickly. I would be able to ride it out at home. That was very much kind of the public health messaging that we were getting at the time. But by day five, Fiona started having trouble breathing. It started as kind of like, oh, I feel, you know, winded or I'm having trouble catching my breath when I get up to go to the bathroom. And then by the end of the day, it was like I couldn't talk. I couldn't eat even really because just the exertion was was winding me. I could barely walk to the bathroom. I was communicating with my partner, like writing on a right on wipe off board. And um, my partner actually had to call the ER on my behalf um, and explain my symptoms. And they were like, you have to come in right away. Fiona went to the ER, and after a night of treatment and oxygen, she was admitted to the hospital. They wheeled me, you know, from the ER into the into the hospital. I was just sobbing the entire way there. Um, and the nurse said to me, oh, now I'm going to get emotional. When I, when I got there, the nurse said to me, you've been through a lot, and I know it's really scary. And it's going to be okay. Like, you're with us now, and we're going to take care of you. And just the validation that like what had happened actually was very scary. And also that, you know, in the ER, everyone was very stressed out and they were very helpful, but they were also like, we have no idea what's going on and we don't know if you'll be able to get tested and that sort of thing. But to have someone really like affirm that I was gonna be taken care of and gonna be looked after, it, it calmed me down and it made me feel better. And I feel, I mean, those people who took care of me while I was there, I feel so indebted to them. Luckily, Fiona's hospital stay was brief, and after one more night and some tests, she was able to go home. When I was discharged from the hospital, they all cheered for me and clapped and were like, yay, Fiona, like, you can do it. You're going to get better, um, you know, and unfortunately it wasn't that simple, but yeah. One year ago was the strangest time in my life. The outbreak of COVID-19 wasn't only scary for patients doctors were scrambling to make sense of it too. We were just waiting to find out uh, what was happening in New York. And it was sort of like, okay, Boston's next, right? It's coming to Boston. So it, it was sort of this moment of, okay, here we go. Um, are we ready? We'll hear from Dr. Jeremy Faust right after this. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? 
While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Dr. Jeremy Faust is an emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He is, for the most part, unflappable, an occupational hazard. But this time last year, he felt a very uncomfortable feeling, panic. I'm working an overnight shift in my ER, and I have a patient with pneumonia, and I look at their x-ray, and I, I just, my eyes go, whoa, that's a nasty pneumonia. That's all over the lungs. That's, wow, okay. It's kind of an older person. And so I occasionally will see that, but pretty unusual, but I was pretty impressed. Two hours later, pneumonia, younger patient, middle-aged, same x-ray. Oh my God. Like, look at that x-ray. Like, that is just nasty. I was just like, check this out. It's my colleague. Like, look at that thing. Third patient overnight in one night, same x-ray, like nasty pneumonia. Now it's a, now we would call this classic COVID pneumonia. Like, now I could like look at that x-ray and be like, COVID. But at the time, I just never seen it. So I said to my colleagues or whatever, I said, we need to test these patients for coronavirus. And we got the little list out and it said, well, do they have the criteria that meet the testing requirements? No, no, they don't. I was like, well, I don't care. Look at this. Look at this. Look at these x-rays. There's three of them, you know, in one night. We need to test everybody. So, and we didn't, we didn't have the tests. We weren't able to do it. And so I had this, that panic where I was, where I was thinking, oh gosh, these people are everywhere. They're going to be everywhere. And we're not even able to detect it. Until, until it's too late, until they have x-rays that look like this. And when, when that happened, I just completely realized like, yeah, Houston, we have a problem. This is, we have an, a major crisis right here and we don't even know it yet. We don't even, we can't even detect it. You couldn't test people for quite a while. Why did it take so long to be able to test these people? The tests weren't available. You just simply didn't have the tests. The the CDC had a major fiasco about this. They didn't develop the test in time. They had quality problems on the inside. It's one of the great, um, you know, mistakes of how that was managed. Um, you know, when you think about the fact, what do you need to make a test? You need to understand the genetics of, of the virus or the bacteria. You need to understand um, some, you need to have something, some molecular understanding of what to test for. We had that information in January. When you look at the people who made the vaccine, they, they had this thing sequenced in days. You, in, in a matter of weeks, the protein structures were available. 
So we actually, interestingly enough, the, the, the prototypes for the vaccines were already being developed in February, and we didn't have a test that was functional in the United States. So it just took time to ramp up and to catch up. So to me, it's like some of that infrastructure exists right now for, you know, quote unquote, COVID-25, like make the swabs, make the, the viral media, make sure you have the system set up. And then at the last second, swap in whatever um, molecule you need it to be. But we didn't do any of that. What was that like as a physician who is trained and is passionate about taking care of other people to have to do it uh, at arm's length or more? Yeah, it's really hard um, to, to connect with people through a shield and an eye mask and a, you know, N95 mask and a, and a big gown because you just look, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how you look, but you look like yourself. And so when someone can't see that you are you, it's just really hard for, to connect with them. And it, what it does is it sort of made the medicine feel really impersonal, which maybe was an okay thing, sort of a, almost like a defense mechanism, like a distance thing. I don't think we spent nearly as much time in those patient rooms as um, we usually do. I know we didn't. We, we went in less often. I was trying to minimize trips. So if we could go in and do something for the nurses or they could go and do something for us, like, you know, we were trying not to, you know, go into too much. I think the, the, the harder piece um, actually was trying to talk patients through it, to reassure them without downplaying. As physicians, we're so used to being able to say to our patients, okay, I've seen this before. Here's what's going to, here's what, here's, let me tell you what's going to happen. Or let me, let me give you a range of possibilities based on your condition. And so we give our patients, I like to give my patients like a really frank and honest assessment of where they're at. So I don't sugarcoat, but I don't, uh, I'm not a you know, doomsdayer either. I'll say, look, here's some things that could, that could go down. And I want you to understand that. So you, you know, just know what to expect. With what I found so difficult with this disease was we didn't know. So how can I look at someone and say, oh yeah, I've seen this tons of times and you know, here's how long it's going to take you to feel better. Uh, I didn't know any of that. So it, was, it, it felt like you were sort of um, you know, driving blind in a way. We, and we also had very little to offer patients other than oxygen, other than intubation if they needed to go on a ventilator. And eventually we started giving steroids and all this other, a few other things that, that may help a little. But that was the hard part was the sense of not just powerlessness, but sense of, I can't even tell you what I think really, because we are in uncharted territory. We watched this in real time and doctors and nurses had to learn, like almost just try to, you know, wing it in some ways. So what do we now know? What is the standard of care for COVID patients? Okay, so it really depends on your severity of disease. And what I will say is that if you do not have what we call hypoxia, low oxygen, hypoxia just literally means oxygen is too low. If, if your oxygen levels are normal, there's really not a ton that I think makes a huge difference. I, I think that, you know, some of these monoclonal antibodies have been talked about. The, um, there's a very narrow group of people who that might help. Um, but for the most part, if you have normal oxygen, in my mind, you don't, there's not much we can offer you at this time. If you do have hypoxia, low oxygen, 
than the things that we know to give you our oxygen. And we don't know if that saves your life or anything, but it, the, the theory is that you get t- your muscles just get less tired sooner. You, you crap out sooner. And your body from. has more energy to fight yeah. the virus, right? Yeah, ostensibly that everything is better when you're oxygenated, right? So we'll never be able to test that because it's just we give the oxygen, okay? Um, and then the, the steroids, the dexamethasone steroid um, has really been shown to uh, have a what we call a mortality benefit. It saves lives of people who need oxygen. A little bit among people who just need any kind of oxygen and a ton, uh, uh, 10 or 11% among people who need to be on ventilators. And when I saw that data, my eyes just bugged out because it was almost too good to be true. But it's, it's, it's so far, you know, it's, it's, I think it, it's probably mostly true. In other words, I think that the, it's the ballpark, you know, we'll never really know. But um, so that's a huge, huge thing is this, we give steroids to people who have low oxygen and that has a mortality benefit. This virus has really laid bare the health disparities that exist in this country. And I know that you realized it almost immediately when you saw some patients in the Brigham ER, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just uncanny. And I give credit to my colleagues, um, Black physicians, persons of color in the medical uh, community who I work with, who um, pointed this out. You know, you know, they say, look, have you noticed something here? And um, I always understood, I thought I understood this before. I really thought I did, right? Um, but I didn't, I, di- I, I did not. Um, I hate to admit it, like I just never really, it never really landed as much as it landed this year. It's not just that black and Hispanic people were disproportionately affected by coronavirus among adults aged 25 to 44. It's that black and Hispanic people were the majority of deaths among a mathematical majority among deaths in this country of coronavirus in young adults. And that to me is just unbelievable. Um, it's, it's an unbelievable um, in, indictment of, of the system failing people and that we need to really shake it up and, and, and rebuild. I'll say one thing with a little bit of like sort of um, one piece of good news is that by the time that when adjusted for disease severity and, and, and everything else, once the patients are in the hospital, the outcomes were appropriately sort of distrib- distributed. So, in other words, the hospital care has been has been equal um, in terms of outcomes. That made that was that gave me a sigh of relief to see that. But what what we have not uh, seen, is, we have seen, I should say, is that the disproportionate numbers who show up on our doorstep. So, and and so you have to reach the community because if you do have a patient who is showing up far sicker <clears throat> than you know white populations, for example, we need to understand why. We want to understand, like, why, where's the messaging that we can reach them? Why, where, how are we failing? How are we not able to do that um, messaging and, and outreach and care so that by the time people come to the hospital, the disparities are already playing out in front of my eyes? What's interesting is that we have seen in the Black population um, a little bit of a comeback story there. The early on, the Black population just devastating numbers. I mean, again, as I said, like I thought I got it, but I didn't get it until I saw it, you know? And, but then over the summer and in the fall, the numbers fall and fall. And at this point later in the, in the crisis, um, there still is excess mortality among, among black Americans, but it's actually pretty similar to white Americans, uh, which is really interesting. I think that some of my colleagues who've been out there 
making the case about, about access and disparities have actually had measurable success and they're saving lives. But we haven't seen the drops that we want to see in every, in every ethnicity and race. And so we still have a lot of work to do. So it's unclear whether it's, you know, physiological considerations, you know, that are making certain populations uh, more likely to, to get sicker and die, or it's access to care, you know, basically income inequality uh, that results in people living in cramped quarters, people not having healthy diets, uh, you know, all the things that go hand in hand with poverty in this country. So, yeah, I would actually, I would not even put it as an either or. So what I would say is I don't think that these massive disparities have anything to do with genetics. So in other words, the the disparities in terms of access really has to do with whether a patient or a person arrives at the moment of infection with a a series of conditions that are preventable, that were preventable, um, that then render their risk factors like off the charts. Right? So that, to me, is baked into the, the, these social determinants of health, these, these systemic factors of inequality, racism, that play out in a sort of magnified way um, suddenly. So it's not that um, you know, one community or another has genetics that is hurting them. That's not the situation at all. It's that the diabetes and the hypertension and the kidney disease and all these other things that, that make a difference. Smoking, actually, even is a, that's something that makes a difference, uh, we, we learned. Um, which is not equally distributed across uh, race and um, income. All these things, when you arrive at the moment of, of infection, um, have, have tremendous implications for your outcomes. So the social determinants of health really have an impact on the physical determinants of health, is That's the right. bottom line. That's right. So social, the social factors are what deny people access to uh, preventative care, or to modulate diseases that all of us would get if it weren't for the correct medical interventions. So some of us are able to avoid it because we're privileged and we're plugged in, and others of us are not. And so then, at the moment that you're infected with coronavirus, you know, you're punished or whatever because of society's choices, our, our, our unfortunate um, structure. Do you think in five years we'll have a much better understanding of this virus, how and why it behaves the way it does, and what has happened in the last year plus? Yes. I think there are three things that we're going to learn that are going to save lives going forward. So we've lost 500,000 lives in this country and millions over the world across. And one of the only things that like makes me like not just like collapse when I hear that number is to think, um, okay, maybe we can learn so much from this that in the long run, years from now, we will save lives in the aggregate. And when we cross that, that threshold depends on two things, how much we learn and how many lives we save today, right? So if we can keep that number low and our knowledge increasing, then we can get there sooner. And so one thing I think we're going to learn from this virus is about transmission dynamics of lots of viruses. We're going to learn all kinds of things about transmission dynamics. And so we're going to understand how better to control disease. The second thing I think we're going to understand a lot better is how to leverage the mRNA vaccine technology. This technology is truly impressive. It didn't happen overnight. It was People say, oh, how do we get a vaccine in one year? And the answer is, we didn't. 
this vaccine um, was the rubber met the road in one year, but this vaccine took 20 years to develop. It took 200 years to develop in some ways because of our understanding. And now people say, look, what, what are the things we can do now that we know this technology actually works? Um, and I, I think that the, the implications are huge. Might it help people with, with cancer in some cases? Might it help a malaria vaccine? Can there be an Ebola vaccine? I don't know the answers to that, but I think that this, this success story is just huge. And also um, what good can happen when we do trials correctly, when there's good regulation and there's good um, buy-in. The last thing I think we might learn from this virus uh, that could be applicable to not just this virus, but many other conditions is the long-term consequences, the long COVID or long haul. I have no idea what we're going to call this. There's going to be different terminologies. Um, so I want to watch the way we say it, but we're just beginning to study this. And there are people who have acute diseases, like things that come and go, right? Like coronavirus, and they have long-term effects. And it's really hard to study that for most diseases because they're not always diagnosed with the right disease or there's just, there's just a few of them. Now we have a cohort of people, unfortunately, who we can really look at and work with together to learn about what happens to the body when it responds to a major, major insult like this virus is. And it, my guess is that the sort of long haul, long-term COVID syndrome that we're seeing is not particular to coronavirus itself, but is much more something that could happen as a result of many, many infectious diseases. And if we can start to untangle how that is occurring and why and, and target that, it could be that we can help people avoid long-term suffering from a variety of diseases. So I think that this is why studying long-term um, symptoms of COVID is extremely important. I mean, patients really, in a way, discovered this. Doctors did not discover this. It was patients talking about it. And, uh, but I think that we're receptive to that. So we should study that because we can actually um, learn from this. When I was discharged from the hospital, they all cheered for me and clapped and were like, yay, Fiona, like you can do it. You're gonna get better, um, you know? And unfortunately it wasn't that simple, but yeah. Fiona Lowenstein, you might recall, is the 26-year-old New Yorker who was hospitalized last March for COVID. But after I got home, I, I remember that Wednesday night, I was like kind of trying to clean up my room a little bit and make it a nicer space. And I opened a, a bottle of essential oil, uh, like a lavender essential oil, because I was like, oh, I'll, you know, diffuse it in the room and it'll feel good. Um, and I couldn't smell it. Like I, I literally thought someone had replaced the oil with water. So then there was this period of a few weeks where I was still quite sick um, and developing different seemingly unrelated symptoms every day. I mean, it was like, okay, I can't smell and now I'm having GI issues. And then I was having like these really intense headaches. And these strange new symptoms. I was like having eye pain and I was very light sensitive. Just lingered. Hives and rashes, um, extreme sensitivity to temperature. Eventually it became clear though she didn't know it at the time, Fiona was a COVID long hauler. At that time, like, there weren't many stories of young people dying, and there weren't any stories of long COVID or long haul COVID, so I certainly wasn't thinking about that. Since her positive test in the hospital, Fiona had been sharing her COVID journey on Instagram, and she was becoming a magnet for other patients desperate for information and guidance. As people were reaching out to me online, I was 
hearing these exact same symptoms. But what was more striking was that a lot of the people that I was connecting with were my age and they had had a milder case than I had, but had gotten sick, you know, first, second, third week of March, and they still weren't getting better. And that was what kind of was the red flag, because for me, I was like, okay, my case was pretty bad. I was hospitalized. So, you know, maybe it's going to take three to four weeks for me to feel like my normal self. But these people who like just had a mild grade fever of like 100 degrees, why are they still feeling so sick, you know, three, four weeks down the line? In late March, Fiona wrote an op-ed for The New York Times, a warning for young people to take this virus seriously. It was called... I'm 26. Coronavirus sent me to the hospital. So that also helped connect me to a lot of other COVID patients because people saw the news and they and they kind of found me on email or social media. And it was really helpful to talk to these people because, you know, they validated my experience and vice versa. But it was also very draining because I was communicating with each of them individually. And so I would wake up in the morning and be like, oh, my gosh, I have like all of these DMs I have to respond to. And this person is in California and their boyfriend is on a ventilator and this person's in Paris. And I realized I should just put them all in a chat together so that we can all talk to each other. And that was something my friend Sabrina and I had talked about as well, was just there's no resources, there's no place to go to get information on this as a patient. And our doctors are so overwhelmed that they can't even, you know, answer our emails or our calls. So we created this little mini support group. It was just in like an Instagram DM. It had maybe like 25, 30 people on there. Um, And people were just sharing updates about their lives, um, but also sharing like very tangible needs and, and questions like, you know, what did they do for you when you were hospitalized? In April 2020, Fiona wrote another op ed for The New York Times called Coronavirus Recovery Isn't So Quick or Simple. In it, she linked to the ad hoc support group she'd started. Overnight, 2,000 people joined. It was astounding. And of course, like, I felt both like, oh my God, I'm not alone. Because people were writing in their sign-up from like, oh my gosh, I've been sick for a month and I don't know why and I can't get better. And this is like the first that I've heard that this is happening to other people. But it was also very overwhelming because I was thinking, how am I going to support these people? Like, it's it's it was me and, you know, my friend running this and we were doing it through Body Politic, which is a group that we ran prior to COVID that, you know, did events in New York City and kind of focused on the intersections of health and social justice. But um, we had a very small volunteer team. We had exceeded, you know, Instagram's chat limit. We moved to WhatsApp, then we exceeded WhatsApp's chat limit. And eventually we got on Slack um, and that's where we are today. This community is called the Body Politic COVID-19 Support Group. More than 20,000 people have signed up since it started in April with more than 10,000 active members today. It has a team of 30 to 40 volunteers who moderate this virtual city of support. We have, I think, about 70 different channels on Slack. And these channels are like little subgroups for different discussions based on either topic or community. So we have channels for almost every system of the body. We have um, a couple of private channels that you join by messaging, you know, the administrators of the group. Um, and that's the LGBTQ plus channel, the BIPOC channel and the medical professionals channel. But we also have channels for people in, you know, South America. We have channels for people in Europe. We have channels for people in New York City. You can go into the Victories channel and just see the good news. Or you can go into, you know, the mental health channel or that we have a need to vent channel, right? Because... Sometimes we need that, but we don't all need to see it all the time. (laughs) 
And another initiative I should mention that grew out of the group is um, the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, which started in Body Politic um, in April. There were some patients in the group who were scientists, who worked in medicine, who had backgrounds in, you know, survey design and research, and basically said, okay, we're seeing a lot of anecdotal evidence that is very contradictory to what we're seeing, you know, in the mainstream media and on the CDC's website. How can we actually find data to support what we think is going on here? And of course, they were talking about, you know, the wide variety of symptoms and the long-term symptoms. Um, so they did their first survey in April um, and just put out an, a, a second preprint on their second survey, which focuses on some more issues facing long COVID patients and COVID patients like sleep issues and mental health and some of the lesser known things. They've been hugely instrumental, I think, um, in, in helping people understand that long COVID is real. And I think they're also doing something really important in terms of helping people understand how communities that have been impacted by illnesses can be involved in the research processes to find treatments and cures for those illnesses. What's been most astounding has just been the way that everything that happened in those early months has affected such amazing change. Congress just announced that they were allocating, I think this was in December or January, that they're allocating $1.15 billion to the NIH to study long COVID and related like post-COVID sequelae. Um, and that's incredible. Like that is, you know, everything that we would have wanted months ago. Like so many other aspects of COVID, supporting COVID patients and recovering from the virus has been something Fiona has had to learn on the job. But she says there are a lot of key takeaways that can extend well beyond this pandemic. I think when you're running a COVID support group or really any patient support group, there's a few very important guiding lights to keep in mind. And the first is keeping it patient-centered. The second is always providing context on recommendations and advice. Um, and the third is always acknowledging, you know, other aspects of politics and people's identities that might be intersecting with their experience of being sick. I didn't realize it at the time, but the thing that those nurses gave me that I needed so badly was just affirmation and validation. That was incredibly helpful. And so I think that's what we really led with in the support group was you're not alone. What you're experiencing is not in your head. And, you know, there are thousands of other people who are here to just walk with you through it. I've mostly recovered from COVID. I think I say recovered, that doesn't mean I'm exactly the same person I was before, but I, I've mostly recovered from COVID. Um, and now I really am passionate about trying to get other people who have survived COVID or who were part of the long COVID community, but have, you know, recovered to still stay engaged with these issues because I, don't know that this is the last pandemic we're going to see in our lifetime. And I know that the pandemic is not going to be over the day that everyone gets vaccinated. Coming up, what COVID has taught us about science. That's right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. I started studying COVID when I realized that I had something to contribute as a person who has studied HIV for a long time and how people live with HIV for a long time. And so this infectious disease was very fascinating to me when coronavirus emerged. So I began studying it as soon as I could. Dr. Carrie Altoff is an associate professor of epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. What we've learned is that we can do science faster with the right resources in place. And we've also learned that even with the right resources in place, science is still really hard. <laughs> and, we, and we've known that it is, it is baby step by baby step, one piece of evidence on top of the next in order to really make progress. And we've known that for a long time. I mean, every quote breakthrough that we have is built on a mountain of baby steps that we took in order to get to that, to that peak where we have what we consider something to be a breakthrough. There are some amazing virologists out there that really pushed forward, you know, our understanding of mRNA vaccines and, and went from, you know, a decade of research uh, in, in uh, phase one, two, and three trials. And then boom, here we go. Brand new virus on the scene and, and they can create these vaccines and get them um, tested in large numbers of people safely and quickly. So I think we, we definitely have learned a lot. We've learned a lot about hospital capacity. We've learned a lot about where to meet people because we understand, and in public health, we always knew that your plan is as good as what you can get people to go along with, right? So if you have a community that takes a hard stand against masks, your plan can't just be masks for that community. So it is about that implementation of what we know from our scientific knowledge and how we roll that out, how we communicate, how we present the information so that people are ready to listen and accept or, or question and, and ask great questions, and, and we build that partnership. With all eyes on scientists and the research they're doing in real time about the virus, Sometimes the information we're so hungry for isn't actually ready for public consumption. 
the scientific information that's come out in the last year, it is most definitely drinking from a, a scientific fire hose. There is just so much information that has come out. We're thinking about science um, in, in faster terms and putting our information out there more quickly, even if it isn't fully peer reviewed and how you have to be careful of that. Um, but, you know, there's this balance of just needing information as a pandemic rages on. And then, of course, we can't talk about science without acknowledging its strange bedfellow, the federal government. Dr. Althoff says what we've learned about that may prepare us for whatever comes next. One of my favorite lines is that public health is best working when you don't notice it. And, and science is a little bit in that way too, right? When, when we are progressing in science, then we have medications for your illness. And uh, when public health is working, then you don't notice, but your drinking water is safe and your road trip is safe. And all of those pieces come together and it just becomes, you know, the air we breathe. And so I think what we've also learned through this pandemic is that science and, and public health are ongoing. And when they're not properly invested in, it only takes a, a pandemic to show show where the cracks are. And, you know, our public health infrastructure has been a place where there has been underinvestment for, for a while and specifically in pandemic preparedness. But now we see different federal agencies looking at the reports that academics have put together about pandemic preparedness, and they're picking them up and saying, we need to make some policy based on what this, this science tells us. And that to me is, is so thrilling. It's, it's just like this bright rainbow after, you know, what has been a very lengthy storm. I think it's important to remember that pandemics end, they always do, that this virus will become what we call endemic, so we will live with it and control it. So hopefully the way that we control measles, for example. Um, what we will need to do in order to kind of get to that point is we will need to have enough immunologic control in the population so that we do not see um, vast numbers of people getting sick. And so what does that mean? It's vaccination, really. That's that's where we're headed. We're not there yet, <laughs> but I do think we will get there. And the most important lesson? We are all connected. I mean, it's just that simple. We are all connected. And I don't know if we all had an awareness of how connected we are until you have something like an infectious disease that doesn't care who you are, it will infect you if given the chance. So I think that is a really important thing for us all to remember, that we are connected and uh, we need to help take care of each other. I wanna go somewhere beautiful, somewhere brand new. A huge thank you to Dr. Carrie Altoff, Fiona Lowenstein, and Dr. Jeremy Faust, not just for being on our podcast, but for the extraordinary work they have all done over this last year. Let's get away, let's make a change. I want to see all of the kindness I've been looking at grave for too long. 
Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I want to go somewhere with you. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play hey guys you know what this playground could use a wine country huh a redwood forest would be cool ski slopes wait did we just invent california discover why california is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com